Some very challenging words in that song. wonder how many of us, if we had lost absolutely everything, our kids, our family, our possessions, our health, like Job, we would still be able to sing that. We'll be able, will we be able to still sing of the goodness of God? Think about it. We are pretty spoiled, you know. We are pretty spoiled. This morning we talk about David and Jesus from as, as, as a continuation of our, but a break from our series on King David. Because last week we concluded our series on the life of King David, which took us uh, 24 messages on that. And this morning, as we lead into Christmas, we transition from David to his most glorious descendant, who is Jesus. This is very important because Jesus didn't just appear out of nowhere on Christmas Day. But in fact, he, he had deep historical roots, which the Bible puts together for us, even though they were some 1,000 years apart. Just to give you some perspective on that, we're in 2021, and imagine that your great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather lived a 1,000 years ago, a 1,021, and you're saying, what possible connection can there be? And yet the Bible does join all the dots for us in a, in a, in a marvellous way. And, and it does that because there, there are hundreds of detailed prophecies concerning his coming, concerning his life, concerning his death, concerning his resurrection and concerning his second coming. And we are in that in-between time. Therefore, his, his birth in human flesh is the most anticipated in all of Scripture, except when you put it next to his second coming, then that becomes a real, a real banger, doesn't it? When you look at all the prophecies, and, and we're, we're there, we're, we're waiting for his return. So first of all, let's look at it in, in three main headings. He was the son of David, he was like David, and he was better than David. So first of all, he was the son of David. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So starting with the very first words of the New Testament, Matthew gives us a genealogy because he wants the readers of his gospel to know exactly who Jesus is and who he is related to. Mary was a descendant of David, as was Joseph, so from both streams. Matthew highlights one, Luke highlights the other. From both streams, they are both related to David. So 
Jesus is rightly considered the son of David. In human terms, Jesus was royalty. Because of King David. So this connection is found all throughout the Gospels. Let me give you at least three reasons why this is important for us. Firstly, his title. Jesus is called the son of David and not the son of Joseph because son of David is a title. It is a messianic title. In the Gospels, Jesus is given this title at least 14 times. For example, when Jesus rode on a donkey into Jerusalem, the people were shouting, what? Hosanna to the son of David. So firstly, his title. Secondly, it's important because of God's promises. Right from the beginning of Jesus' life, he is being linked to King David to fulfill the promise God made to King David that we looked at in our series. We, we looked at this in 1 Chronicles chapter 22, verse 10. And what was the promise? He shall build a house for my name, and he shall be my son, and I will be his father, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom over Israel forever. And somebody will say, well, no, that just refers to Solomon. Yes, but no. Yes, it is about Solomon, and maybe that's the way that David immediately understood it, but it's much bigger because a house is also not just a physical building, but it's also about your your lineage. And Jesus stood before the temple and he says, I will destroy it and build it up in three days, didn't he? Because that's who Jesus was. And, and, and not only that, but Solomon, Solomon was just a human being and all the other kings were human beings. But there was only one king who will be king forever, and that is Jesus Christ. So his title, God's promises, and thirdly, his incarnation. Jesus was born into human flesh. For him to come to save us, he needed to feel pain, be tempted like the rest of us. And and so we can never then point the finger at God and say, you don't know what it's like to be living down here. You don't know what it's like to suffer, to feel loss. But you see, he knows. He knows in, in, in every way. The fact that the only way he didn't experience is that he never sinned. He was tempted in every way, but he never sinned. In fact, Paul makes it clear that Jesus' relationship to David is, is essential to the story of the gospel itself. At the very beginning of his great epistle to the Romans, the Apostle Paul says this, because remember, Romans is the great treatise of the gospel, right? And so Paul 
writes these wonderful words, the first three verses of Romans. He says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and, and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel, there's that word again, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his earthly life, right, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David. That's the connection. That's that connection. So he was the son of David. Our second heading, he was like David. He was like David. There are some important similarities between Jesus and David. And let me just mention a couple of them. There are obviously many more, but let's just dwell on a couple. In where he was born. In where he was born, he was like David. You might remember the story of the the bus full of tourists that stops uh, in a small village in Europe. And um, one of the tourists gets out of the bus and as he steps out, he finds a, a local and uh, with an air of condescension asks of him, were any famous people born here? Right. Maybe you've, you've been in, in bus tours with people like this. Anyway, and the local without missing a beat replies, no, no famous people, just babies. <laughs> well, Bethlehem was one of those insignificant villages where a couple of famous people were born as babies. David and Jesus. And of course, then you can go back and talk about Ruth, Naomi. And this is what Micah, the prophet Micah, said. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. So the, it could only be referring to the Messiah. The prophet Micah prophesied that the Messiah would be born in the town of Bethlehem. That's very specific. It didn't say it will be born somewhere in Israel or somewhere in Judah or somewhere in the Middle East. But he gave the town. And by Micah's day, which is about 700, Micah lived about 750 years before Jesus. That's about 225 to 250 years after David. Bethlehem was still this, this puny little insignificant village on the outskirts of, of, Beth, of, of Jerusalem. So why Bethlehem of all places? In Luke 169 we read, He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. This connection with David through Bethlehem seems to be more than just a matter of genealogy. When you think about it, Jesus did not have to be born in Bethlehem 
in order to make a claim to the Davidic throne, in order for, for his claim to royalty, because as, as we saw in our series, all of David's sons, some who were, wanted to be king, and, and certainly his descendants, king after king after king, were born either in Hebron or in Jerusalem. They weren't born in Bethlehem. They were still kings. So why Bethlehem? Because God wanted it that way, because he wanted another accurate spiritual connection that he was going to announce that this birth was going to be special, very special, And he announced it. He told us about it through his servants, the prophets. It was a validation that something big was going to happen, even though it was 750 years after Micah. And Micah's prophecy was fulfilled in the New Testament. Luke chapter 2, verse 4. And Joseph also went up from Galilee from the town of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David. I don't know whether you've picked up on on this or not, but it's interesting that Luke calls Bethlehem the city of David. And and this can be sometimes confusing since Jerusalem is considered the city of David and if you were to go for a tour today to Israel and, and visit Jerusalem, they will tell you, they will say, this is the city of David. This part of Jerusalem is actually known as the city of David. But here it's actually Bethlehem that's called the city of David. Why? Because Bethlehem was the place where David was born and raised. And God, again, it's one of those things that the sovereign Lord does because he ultimately, all of history is his story. Caesar Augustus is the emperor. Millions of people under his dominion. Millions of residents under his power. And God puts into Caesar Augustus' head, you need to do a census. He wakes up one morning and says, I need to do a census. There is in, right, Galilee in, in the another little puny little town called Nazareth. Why? Because this, this chess piece needs to be moved from here to there. And so the whole of the empire is rattled because the Caesar Augustus suddenly says, I need to do a census. Why? Because the Son of God had to move from this heavily pregnant woman most uncomfortable to be done in the last stages of pregnancy. Those of you who are pregnant would know what it's like. Can you get me that cup? I can't move. 
I'm heavily pregnant, you know. Oh, no, I can't mow the grass. I'm eight, eight and a half months pregnant, okay? I know you boys understand all this. God says to Caesar Augustus, you need to do a census. Lo and behold, we move from Nazareth to Bethlehem. The whole of the empire rattled because God had to have his son born, not here, but there. Who does that? Who does that? Why would he do it? Why is it so important? Because he told us he would. He had to be fulfilled. He had to be done this way. This is no coincidence. This is no accident of history. To think of for a moment with all the uncertainty in our world today, oh, what are we going to do and all the anxiety and the anxiousness and all the talk about climate change and all this other rubbish that goes on, that God is rattled in any single possible way? No. He's sovereign. He's God. If you're not a son or a daughter of God who truly believes in the sovereignty of God and trust him in every possible way, then you're missing out. If you're anxious and worried, it's your choice. It's not because you have to be. Right? He's in control. What God will be saying to us is, get on with the program, with my program, not yours. Right? Everything I've said will be fulfilled in every possible way. If I've done that in the past, don't you think that I'm going to do that now and into the future? Paul Mosinjuk, your life is in my hands. Every breath, every heartbeat, every possible scent that you think you own in your wallet is mine. All the people you know and your job, your everything is it's mine. It's not and I can call it at any moment. I'm still Lord. I'm still good. I'm still giving you a chance to sing of my goodness. Can you live with that? And so God put the idea of a census in the emperor's head and the whole empire had to shuffle across and play musical chairs because Jesus, the Son of God, had to be born in Bethlehem just as he said he would. And by the time Jesus was born, there was already a a messianic fervour around. It was 400 years since the last prophet and and during times of, it's interesting that during times of prosperity, when your house prices are going up and everybody's sort of optimistically, optimistic, you know, materially and all of this, we think very little of God and his purposes because, you know, life is good. Yet suddenly, 
In times of uncertainty, when our freedoms are restricted, we don't know about that one, do we? And even persecution, that one's still to come, folks. Persecution. Human hopes and hearts tend to be drawn closer to God. And again, God can do anything to get us closer to him. Okay? This is, history tells us this. Israel was under Roman occupation in Jesus' day. And, and, and so therefore many Jewish people were looking forward for the coming of the Messiah. And, 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 the, and, and the Bible gives us a little bit, gives us some hints of what the, the, the life was like at that time, what, the, what their expectations were. And this is what Luke tells us about Anna, who was an old woman who, was, who turned up when the infant Jesus was presented at the temple. And this is what Luke tells us in Luke 2.38. Coming up to them, who was them? The parents. At that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were, all who were what? That were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. This was the expectation. And for those who knew their prophecy like Anna, Jesus' birth in Bethlehem would, be, would have sent a, a very hopeful message to those Jewish people who were waiting for the Messiah's arrival. How about us? Are our bank accounts... Fridges and stomachs so full that we really don't need a Messiah to deliver us. You know, the the current pandemic has pushed us to rather trust in governments and scientists. Folks, our ultimate trust should always be in the one who delivers and sustains us today tomorrow and into eternity. How else was Jesus similar to David, like David, in what he was like? In what he was like. One of the very first titles given to David is, is shepherd. David, David was a shepherd. Uh, the, the prophet Samuel, you will recall, went to a lowly town of of Bethlehem to anoint one of the boys from a lowly family. And there were many boys there, and, but the youngest, was, the youngest one wasn't even there as he was tending his father's sheep. He, that's how insignificant he was. This tells us that David was a simple, lowly boy in a lowly family, in a lowly town. Do you get the message? He didn't grow up with a silver spoon in his mouth. He didn't grow up in the world of politics. He was a a greenhorn who had to be led by God with on-the-job training. And he grew up and he excelled in every way. And David didn't just shepherd his people politically. He also desired to shepherd his people spiritually. He wanted them to, 
to know the God of Abraham, of Isaac and Jacob, the God of their forefather. So the king, because so goes the king, so go the people. If the leader is a follower of God, the people, the rest of the kingdom will follow. And as we know Israel's history, the kings went this way and the people followed to worship idols and the rest. But for David, his overarching desire was to have his people follow God with whole hearts to a centralised worship. And crucial to that end was the desire to build a permanent house for the Lord where the people will come from all around to the city of Zion and glorify God. This is why he really wanted to build a temple for God, a permanent house. And as he led his people for 40 years, this shepherd king cared for the people of his kingdom in, in 2 Samuel 8.15, this is what we read. He says, so David reigned over all of Israel and, and this is how he reigned. He administered justice and righteousness for all his people. That's a great compliment, isn't it? He was a good king. This, this means that David treated the Israelites equally under the law. And he didn't show partiality but he administered justice as he ruled. So we have already mentioned that the height and expectations that the Messiah would, would free Israel from their oppressors. But as history shows, you can have a leader who liberates the, the, the nation from, from, tyrant, from a tyrant only to establish himself as a tyrant who is then ten times worse than the previous despot that he just kicked out. Right? Happens all over the world. Happens all over history. Most kings in Israel, with the rare exceptions, were between bad and worse. And as you read two kings and two chronicles, the history books of the Bible you, you read it and he says, please be good, please be good. And then the, the summary at the end, of, and, but he wasn't like his father David. He followed idols and, and did this and that. And I said, oh man, there has to be someone good. And then you get the exceptions like Josiah and Hezekiah and others who were good, but they weren't perfect. No one could be perfect. But so there's, 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 growing expectation that someone better is to come. There's this growing expectation, you know, that, that we have, there is someone who has to arrest this cynicism in our society. Come election time, we're going to pick a good leader and then we come to vote and say, well, oh no, these are our choices, really? Is this all we got? And the cynicism just sinks everybody and says, oh, okay. And, you know, there's the donkey vote comes out. That's why God was was lifting the spirits of the people of the day and said, there is, don't have your hopes on, 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 on men. Have your hopes on me. 
someone who will lift the hopes and bring the nation out of this leadership vacuum. I will bring the Messiah. I will give you a king. I will give you a leader. So when the prophets told of what the, the coming Messiah would be like, both Isaiah and Jeremiah and others highlighted the way that Jesus would rule. And it sounded very similar to the way that David ruled with justice and righteousness. This is what Isaiah writes in that famous chapter, Isaiah chapter 9, that we read at Christmas time, verses 6 to 7. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And then says, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. This is what he was like. Jesus, the good shepherd, as John chapter 10 tells us, leads and guides his sheep without partiality. You could see this in the way that he showed compassion and grace to those who were marginalised, while, you know, to the poor and the marginalised, to those who were sick and hungry. He cared for them. But at the same time, he criticised and really went after the religious leaders of Israel who loaded the people with burdens and, and, and withheld justice from the people, the ones who would need it the most. And he said to them, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. Beautiful words, right? Thirdly and lastly, he was better than David. He was better than David. So even though David was known as a man after God's own heart, we know that he was human and imperfect in many ways. Yet, for all of his faults, David's faith in God set him apart from all the other monarchs in Israel. So the the writers of Kings and, and, and Chronicles would often compare the kings of Israel and Judah to David because so David was the standard and everybody else was measured up to what David was like. Even his own son Solomon, even his own son Solomon, who started off so well, fell short. And this is what we're reading 1 Kings 11.6. So Solomon, he did what? He did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely as David, his father, had done. David was a standard. See? And so because Jesus had a lot of time for the poor and the marginalised and spoke against the legalism and of the religious leaders, they tried to trap him and expose him as a fraud. But they couldn't. He spoke with authority. And while Jesus was David's descendant, he could not and would not derive his authority from his ancestry. That that wasn't going to be enough. 
as Messiah, he had to be more than an earthly king. He had to be Lord of all. My kingdom is not of this world, he said to Pontius Pilate. Far more exalted than even their greatest King David he had to be. So on one occasion, he asked them a question. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. And he said to them, How is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make I put your enemies under your feet. If then, that's the setup, right? If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? And no one could say a word in reply from that day on. No one dared to ask him any more questions. Pretty obvious that most Pharisees did not believe Jesus was the Christ, was the Messiah. So by asking them who the Messiah is, he gives them another opportunity to acknowledge him as the anointed one, as the Messiah from God, the the one that they were waiting for. He gave them many chances, but he is just another one. Therefore, Jesus was not asking them, Jesus is not asking them, what do you think of me? He asked that question of his disciples. But he's not asking them, what do you think of me? He's asking them in a general way what impression they had, what were their ideas of what the Messiah would be like. And the Pharisees' response, you know, he would be the son of David. That was obvious, it was easy. But their answer also reflects their conviction that the Messiah would be no more than a man, a man who would deliver them of their immediate oppression, the Romans, get rid of them, Give us, bring us back our freedom, bring us out of lockdown, and then we'll be fine. As if that's going to solve everything, right? Then Jesus quoted this psalm, which is the most quoted in the New Testament, by the way, Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Now, no one denied, no one, no one denied that it was David who wrote this psalm. And and Jesus just points out the fact that this is inspired by the Holy Spirit that this just didn't come out of David's head. It was obvious from this and and many other scriptures that the Messiah was to be the son of David. That's pretty obvious. Yet in this psalm, David refers to the Messiah as his Lord. He is more than just his son. So here that the first word, The Lord said to my Lord. So the first word for Lord refers to God the Father. The other word for Lord refers to God the Son. And incidentally, we have in that passage also mention of the Holy Spirit. 
So, again, you have a Trinitarian passage right there. Now, Jesus, this is for the clincher, right? He's setting the trap, bang. Jesus posed another question. David calls him Lord. How is he his son? Now, I am Jeremy's father. Everybody knows that. It's common knowledge. It would be weird. It would be weird if I bowed down to Jeremy and called him Lord. It would not be weird if Jeremy, however, as it is in many cultures, in Africa, in Asia, would bow before he comes before me. Right? I know in Australia it's really weird. What, what's going on there? Right? But in many parts of the world this is normal. This is a sign of respect from the son to the father. But yet in this passage, in this passage it is, why, and Jesus says, why is it that David is calling his son Lord? Nobody does that. It doesn't make any sense. Unless, of course, you interpret it from a divine perspective, which is what he's doing. The Messiah is both David's Lord and David's son. Both God and man. As God, he is David's Lord. As man, he is David's son. How could he save us unless he was both son of God with authority and the son of man without sin? And Jesus obviously totally stumped those Pharisees who wanted to believe only in a human Messiah but not a divine one. They had no problems with son of man. They really had a problem with son of God. And that's why they put him on the cross. Many today in our society dismiss Jesus just like the Pharisees. Make fun of it, right? Jesus is a swear word. But rejecting Jesus has eternal consequences, I have to remind you. He is inviting us. He is inviting us into a relationship with him. It's not a, a mateship thing. No, you come before him. You have to recognize him as Lord. Yes, he's our friend. Yes, he's our saviour, but he's our Lord. He runs the show. We submit to him. And in the end of the Bible, which is the book of Revelations, in the very last chapter, here is one of those invitations that is open up until now. We don't know for how long this will be open, but up until now, you and I have a chance to submit to him, if you haven't already done so. This is what he says in Revelation chapter 22, verses 16 to 17. He says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. 
I am the root and the offspring of David. There's that word again. And I love that description. And the bright and morning star. Huh? Beautiful, isn't it? The spirit and the bride say, come, come. And let the one who hears, come, come. Let the one who is thirsty, come. There's the invitation, come. And let the one who wishes, take what? Take the free gift of the water of life. The free gift. What an invitation, right? What an invitation. Making a decision about Jesus Christ is a life, is a matter of life or death. No, I'm not talking about physical. I'm talking, it's, it's eternal. These are eternal consequences. And eternity is a very long time, by the way. And the evidence is there for all of us to examine. It is here. It is in his word. And we can examine it defensively and find all the excuses, all the loopholes in the Bible, try to find them anyway, and like those Pharisees who came to Jesus and says, no, no, but what about, and what about, no, no, I can't believe it. Well, if you come to God in that way defensively, you will miss out the truth. On the other hand, we can examine it honestly, humbly, with open eyes and open hearts, discover the truth, believe it, and be saved. This is not my promise, this is his promise. Religious leaders, they were blinded by tradition, by position, by pride. They could not see the truth and receive it. There are many in our day today I would say most, who are in the same position as the Pharisees that would not accept Jesus as Lord and Saviour. We dare not make the same mistake. I plead with you. Give your life to Jesus. Recognise him as Lord and Saviour. And your life, whatever may come in the future, we don't know will be different. That I can assure you because it's his promise, not mine. Not your life, but your eternal destiny is forever secure in his hands. Don't reject his invitation to come before him, to come and surrender to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Amen.